All right. Let's say a prayer and then we'll get down to business. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this day to rejoice in your gift of love. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that as you have loved us, we might love one another. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is somebody, uh, Kirby Bruzek sent a clip of a, um, a carol. I'm sure that many of you heard this. I recognize the name, but I've never, I don't think I recognize the tune. Tomorrow shall be my dancing day. Do you recognize that na- name? Of that? Um, it's an old, old English text, but then set by a couple of uh, more contemporary composers. Um, so this is... Gardner's uh, arrangement of it that I'm going to play for you. It's just the. It's on page number two. Sorry, page number two, of your of your handout. <laughs> it's it's not user friendly, is it? Um, page two. So there's you see there's a whole bunch of verses. The verses are. I think after we listen to it, we'll read the rest of the verses because it's the music only goes for the first four verses. It's uh, it's great. It speaks for itself. Um, yeah, you'll you'll catch on. Here, let's see what happens. Here we go. Doesn't it just make you want to be a boy in, at King's College? And isn't that great? Uh, so as you, you probably caught on, the voice, the singer is Jesus, right? Singing about how he's going to call his true love to dance. 
Um, notice how the verses progress, though. They get even better. So verse number five, into the desert I was led where I fasted without substance. The devil bade me make, my stones, my, make stones my bread to have me break my true love's dance. The Jew, so it, so it, it invites you to think about the whole story. This is a spoiler for the sermon this Sunday. The whole story as a love story, right? From beginning to end, even when it appears not to be a love story. The Jews on me, they made great suit, and with me made my great variance, because they loved darkness rather than light to call my true love to my dance. For thirty pence Judas me sold, his covetousness for to advance. Mark whom I kiss, the same do hold, the same as he shall lead the dance. That language of kissing, um, keep that in mind as we move to Song of Songs. Uh, for, you know, There's this sort of plain meaning of the text, right? Let my... Uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, verse, mouth, not mouse, mouth, verse 2 of Song of Songs, chapter 1. But kisses have all of these potential ways that they go wrong, right? Not just, not just in expressing love. Before Pilate, the Jews me brought where Barabbas had deliverance. They scourged me and set me at naught, judged me to die to lead the dance. Then on the cross hanged I was where a spear my heart did glance. There issued forth both water and blood to call my true love to my dance. Then down to hell I took my way for my true love's deliverance and rose again on the third day up to my true love and the dance. Then up to heaven I did ascend where now I dwell in sure substance. On the right hand of God that man may come unto the general dance. It's kind of, so I find that last line to be a bit of a bummer because it's, it's, we don't use that language to, in this, this way anymore. There's got to be a better way, a more beautiful way to say it. But you get the picture, right? It's, it's incredible. Um, we have so many hymns that are like this in the tradition of the church. So the kids, the older kids for pastor chats are learning Savior of the Nations Come, which is when we get to Advent and you start singing that song, you'll see how that's the, it tells the story, the whole story. We got the whole story to learn. Um, and when you understand that God's every action and Jesus' every action and even all of the, the, you know, the uh, ways the story gets tangled up, it's nonetheless still a love story. Um, it really it helps you to reframe things, to think, about, to think about things in the way that they truly are. Okay, so oh, if you're interested, there's, there are, um, there's an arrangement of this by Gustav Holst, whom you might know for uh, the planets. He's, he also wrote... The tune that we sing, we praise thee and acknowledge, that's part of the planets, right? Uh, his planets suite. Um, he wrote an arrangement of this, which is also very nice. It was longer, so I didn't want to play it for you. But if you get a chance to YouTube that, it'll be great. Um, look it up, and then you get, you get more of the verses. It's really beautiful. Do you have any questions? I think it's wonderful. Good. <laughs> it is wonderful. I, I want to listen to it more and more and more. Maybe we'll listen to it at the end, too. I don't know. <laughs> It's an old English tune. I don't, or an old English text. I'm not sure. Um, I have the, the date 1080 in my head, but that could be for something else. <laughs> it's hard to say. That's that's right. <laughs> you know how it goes. You get things attached in different parts of your head. Uh, I felt so bad. I called. There's a little girl uh, who's three months old. Her name is Riley, and I called her Reagan. To her parents, she wasn't listening. But I called her Reagan because I have a cousin who is a daughter Riley and a daughter Reagan, and I stored that information in the same part of my head, and then it broke on the way out. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, what are your questions? 
about Song of Songs, about chapter 1, about anything. What do you got? Anything. Are you enjoying this? Yes. yes. Good. Good. Um, have you had a chance to read Song of Songs aloud during the week? Okay. When it, so for, for those of you who have done it, who have had a chance to do it, what's your, how does that make you feel? How has that been? Yes, Elizabeth. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that's one of the most fruitful things about it is um, you you see things showing up in different places. You see the connections. You see the um, how it's all one. It's all of one piece. Um, and the things that might have taken you might have distracted you a bit before they become less distracting. I think that's one of the real real benefits. You become used to the language. So now um, my advice to all. Uh, lovers and beloved is to say to your beloved, let, me ki- let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's just a great thing because for your love is better than wine. What a nice thing to say to somebody, right? So you should all say that to somebody today, okay? Um, <laughs> the point exactly, right? Okay, uh, what are other questions, other comments? Yeah, yeah. And there, so one of the striking things to me is there are times when, um, when he just becomes, when he, when he says uh, this litany of, of, of words to describe her. You, verse 9 of chapter 4, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. And then again, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. And later he says, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, Mm. Nope, I can't find it. Uh, we'll find it another time. Uh, but the, it, it's sort of this uh, exhaustion of the, the, the possible ways that, he could, that they can describe for their love for one another. By the way, so, you, so it's, you know, it's color-coded. I noticed something as I was reading it this week that actually balances things out a little bit. Um, you might want to m- mark this down. Take a note, take a look. Chapter 2. Verse, beginning at verse 10, she says, my beloved speaks and says to me, and then a quotation begins. And this is, so this is her quoting him. So this is actually him through verse 15. So if I was going to reformat this, I might make that a different color altogether. But this is, this is what he says. And this is beautiful. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, which is in answer to her appeal in the beginning for him to draw her away. Come, come away. So that happens there, verses 10 through 15 of chapter 2. And then again, in uh, chapter 5, when she's dreaming, verse 2, my beloved is knocking, and then a quotation. She sa- he says to her, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. There it is. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Um, so you might just make note of that, that uh, her, her voice, although she's, you know, she's the one t- repeating what he said, is not as quite as predominant as it seems at first glance. We hear his voice too. Okay, anything else? Any other questions or comments? What I'd like to do today is uh, dive into the text a little bit. Now, this is the trick with poetry, is that as soon as you uh, do something other than just read it or hear it recited, you rob it of some of its power, right? But the idea is that by giving you some of the meaning or fleshing things out a little bit, the next time you read it, you'll have more, a bigger apparatus. You'll have um, 
more, more, more structure to, to hear it with. So, let's take a look at verses 2 through 4. And um, we're just going to read it, and then I want to hear your thoughts. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will, and then others, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So the question, one, a simple question, a simple way to ask this is what's going on right here? Maybe it's not a simple way to ask here. Um, She's remembering and also yearning. Yearning. Okay, she's remembering and yearning, right? So um, for her to know that his love is better than wine, she has a memory of it, right? And of his, of his oils and the fragrance um, and his kisses, right? So she's remembering, but she's yearning. And I think that's really um, the, sort of the most apt description of it right here. I wrote down longing and desire, right? So what does she want? What does she want? This is a really, this is, again, this sounds like a simple question. It's not so simple. What does she want? She wants to be, she wants to be married, okay. Perhaps, right? So now, take that a little bit, take that, take that thought, she wants to be married, and frame that just a bit differently. Why would she want to be married? Because he would be hers. Because he would be hers. That's right. I think it's interesting. I asked. I, I, um, I'm going to start now. I had a meeting this week, and I, one of the things I'm going to ask couples. I always take it for granted, premarital counseling. The question, you know, why do you want to get married? But it's an, actually a really sort of revealing question to ask. And I think one of the interesting things will be to um, sort of uh, consider. So, what are the possible answers to that question? Why do you want to get married? Yes, surely. As a declaration of love. Okay. Okay, so it expresses something about your relationship, okay? Or, or take it into a different realm, you know, um, why do you want to be with your friend? Or why do, you wa- why do you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? Why? Because you have to? Okay. No. Uh, why, what's that, Lindsay? To be a family. To be a family, okay? What about your family uh, makes you want to... A family. Okay. You have fun together, right? Okay. They have to let you in, right? I feel that way sometimes. That's why. That's one of one of the great benefits of being married is you have two families who have to accept you now, right? Um, that's exactly right. You know, so there's a, there's a variety of other possible answers. So you might say, you know, friendships are often formed because of shared interests, right? So. I want to be with this person because they like fishing as much as I do, right? Um, what, what, what does that say about the character of that relationship, though? This is really... Um, it, it, it's egocentric. Okay, yeah. It's egocentric. Can you expound on that? Just Maybe mutually egocentric. Right. But you're with that person because that person does something that you like. Right. Right, they they do something for you, right? They 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 fill some some goal of yours, right? Something that they do meets your desires. Do you catch the difference here? Something that they do meets your desires, as opposed to this person meeting your desires, 
You see the difference there? Okay, so um, I might say, uh, you know, I love, I love my kids because they play football with me, right? In which case, um, it's the fact that I get to play football with kids that is, is the source of my love. One of the reasons why that's not an adequate answer, it might be true that I reflect on this and I say playing football with my kids is great, but one of the reasons why that's not quite adequate is because I might play football with any kids, right, and have that need, have that desire met, okay? So that cannot be the definition of my love for my kids. It cannot be something that they do. There's this great book by Sally Lloyd-Jones, Little Brown Squirrel. He runs around all day asking his dad, Dad, do you love me because I'm so very fast, because I'm a good climber, because I'm so handsome? And his dad says all along, you are super fast and you're a great climber and you're very handsome. And they get to the end of the day, why do you love me, Dad? Because you're mine, right? That's a, it's a subtle difference in, 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 you know, in describing it, but it's really profound, really rich, really substantive in reality, Okay, so if I ask a couple who's getting married, why do you, why do you want to get married? And they say, it's because um, we're complementary, like my, our, our personalities match up. Okay, that's nice. It's good. Your personalities match up. But your personality might match up with somebody else, too. Right? So that can't be the reason. Uh, take a look at this first quotation here. This gets, this gets at the point that I'm trying to make. The first quotation, in, see in that right column, um, on the first page. Israel does not hear... So here we're going to... I'll talk a little bit more about the theological language here. Israel does not hear long for forgiveness of sin or rescue from disaster or for other gifts detachable from the giver, as Western theology tends to conceive salvation, but simply for the Lord himself. Okay? Think about, think about the way this plays out in theology. So often we understand our relationship to God in terms of what God is going to do for us, right? So, we love God because he forgives our sins. Well, that's one of the things that he does for us, right? That's among the things that he does for us. But we love God because we are his and he is ours. Do you see the difference? Does that make sense? It it has to do... It's the difference between... um, Grammatically... I'm going to experiment on you, okay? I do this a lot to you, I know. Um, I'm teaching Bible class on Sunday, and I'm going to see... So if, you, if this doesn't make any sense to you, then I won't do it on Sunday. <laughs> Grammatically, do you, do, you, do you know the difference between a subject and an object? Do you, does that remind you of... of f- f- okay, I know, I know. Here, I'll make it, I'll make it really simple. Here's, here's... Jody is my subject. Uh... Let's see. Let's see. Um, uh, let me think of a something uh, a, way, a, a great sentence. So let's say Jody um, helps patients when you're a nurse. Okay, I'm always a nurse. that's exactly right. Okay, Jody helps patients. So here's the subject. Jody is uh, the the nominative, the subject side of the sentence. Patients are on the other side, right? So in this relationship. <coughs> The patients receive the action from Jody, right? Jody's relationship to them is as a subject to an object. This is very different than if I say, for instance, Jody is a nurse. 
Jody's not doing something to this part of the sentence. This part of the sentence isn't, she's not receiving anything from it. It's just, it's just an identity. This is, is who she is. This is something peculiar about the verb is. It's a, really, it's a strange verb in, in every language because um, it lets you relate one subject to another. Now take, for instance, the, the verb love. Let's see. Jody loves the Cubs? The Hawks. The Hawks. Okay. Now, you remember in middle school, did you, this ever happened, maybe this is just when I was in middle school, you'd say, somebody would say too many times, oh, I love the Hawks, and your smart friends would say, well, if you love them so much, why why don't you marry them, right? Well, what's the problem, of course? You can't marry the Hawks because they're an object, right? They're not a subject. You don't mean the relationship between two subjects, but... When Jody loves Steve, yeah, <laughs> this is peculiarly the relationship between two subjects. And here's what this means. So grammatically, it's a subject and an object. But this defies grammatical conventions because Jody doesn't use Steve, right? She's not simply doing something to him or he doing something to her or she's not giving something to him and he's giving something to her but they are in this relationship of two subjects one to another does that make sense the difference between a subject and an object you can think of it really basically in terms of objectifying right you know what that means to objectify something to use somebody apart from their person so there's these a couple of great anecdotes that relate to you you remember uh Last year, you watched a video with Pastor Nelson of Christopher West talking about the difference between nakedness without shame and shameless nakedness, right? And so the, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of a person, but that it shows too little because you don't see the whole person. So he told the story of uh, uh, a model for a figure drawing class who comes in and disrobes and is totally comfortable doing it, but then notices the windows open and there are people passing by outside and she quickly covers herself because she can't trust their gaze to see her person. They'll stop at seeing her body. Another interesting uh, example I just, I just read this week about, about how uh, people too often, too easily become objects as opposed to subjects. There's Somebody was telling a story about a friend of his who had been a part of a fraternity in college, and the fraternity had planned to have a stripper come over to the house in the evening, right? And so they're all gathered together, the guys are together, and the the stripper comes, and she notices, as she comes in, she notices that one of the guys she went to high school with. And she naturally bolts because they they know each other as persons, as subjects. And that's not what anybody was after, right? They wanted to, object, to be objects for one another. You see, the, you see the difference there? So this is really, this is helpful for one thing in understanding our relationship to other people. Um, we, anytime we're regarding somebody as an object, we risk, we, we, we're not loving them, right? Regarding them as a subject is how we love them, which means not asking the question, what can I get from this person, or what can I do for this person, or how can we be mutually beneficial to another, one another, but I love this person, right? Um, I love this person because this person is this person. 
which translates then to our relationship to God. I love God not merely because he forgives my sins or delivers me from trouble. Those are manifestations of his goodness towards me. But I love God because he is God. Okay? Now, that is difficult, right? Um, it's, uh, it's sort of beyond our comprehension how we might approach God that way. Um, how is it that that happens? How is it that we love God as God? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. As, yeah. a as a person, right? Yeah. Just, think, just think about how <laughs> important it is that Jesus himself takes on flesh and becomes uh, uh, tangible to us, right? So that now we have a person to whom we can relate. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, all of that is to say in verses 1 through 4, she is expressing her desire for him, not for what he can do for her, not for um, what she can get from him, not even for, as remember from Proverbs 7, not even for the love that they might share, but for him. Okay? Now take a, any questions? Carol. Not a question, but just a thought. When you were reading, it said that the sense that it's almost like a, she is almost like an exile. And that she had this, and it's gone. Hmm. Or and once it's back, or in a distant land and coming back, that, that it's... Is there's something missing that she has? Right. So that's, I mean, and that's in the character of longing and desire, right? So it's when you don't have your object that your longing is your predominant sense, right? It's not something, oh, I like what they have. I want that. It's something that she has. Sure. So now, so take that thought for a second and translate. Let's, let's think about this um, both in terms of the history of Israel and in terms of the church. Can you see in verses 1 through 4 either of those stories? I can see the Reformation. The Reformation, okay. How so? Go ahead. Um, we're just reading and saying, we had this. Sure. The, the, the drive and the yearning. That yeah. Right. So, he, I mean, famously, we say of Luther that he was looking for a gracious God. He knew that there was a gracious God, but he couldn't find him, right? Because the church was only giving him a condemning God, a God of righteousness that wasn't gracious. Good. Uh, take, take a closer look at a couple of these images. What are, what are, this is, this is, I know this is, seems trite, but what are the, what are the images that, that, um, what are the things in these verses? What is she using to describe? Oil and wine. Oil and wine. What else? His mouth kisses his chambers, right? Calling him a king. Put it in the context of the temple. Um... What do you suppose? So, so imagine for a moment that uh, Israel is is asking to be drawn after her king towards the temple. 
um, into the inner chambers, the, the holy of holies where God comes to meet his people. Take that thought for a second. Now translate that to how we meet God here. Notice all, the, notice all of the ways that this plays out in our life in church. So, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You already talked, I think, a bit about how um, we have this, this, we go mouth to mouth with Jesus in the Eucharist, right? Take a look at page four, the last page. This is what Teresa, this is Teresa of Avila commenting on what's going on here. And, well, there's a couple of remarkable things about it, but just listen for a second. Number 10, it starts at number 10 there. Oh, my Lord and my God, and what words are these that a worm speaks them to its creator? May you be blessed, Lord, for in so many ways have you taught us. But who will dare, my king, utter these words without your permission? The thought is frightening, and so it will be frightening that I tell anyone to utter them. People will say, I am a fool, that the words don't mean this, that they have many meanings, that obviously we must not speak such words to God, that for this reason it is good that simple people do not read these things. I confess that the passage has many meanings, but the soul that is enkindled with a love that makes it mad desires nothing else than to say these words. Indeed, the Lord does not forbid her to say them. God help me, why are we surprised? Isn't the, deed more, isn't the deed more admirable? Do we not approach the most blessed sacrament? And I was even wondering if the bride was asking for this favor that Christ afterward gave us. Okay, so she sees right away that, you know, the, the, that our pleas for the sacrament are the same pleas that the woman is making here in this text. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Now you get anointing oils. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Um, this is interesting. There's, there's a bunch of puns at play here in, in the Hebrew. So oil sounds like name. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. What is that, what is that ring of in the church? Baptism, right? All of the, all of the parts are there. Anointing oil. And then, uh, and then your name is, in fact, the substance of that of that anointing it's uh it's the chrysamine the putting christ's name on you that happens in baptism right um and so and therefore virgins love you therefore the pure ones love you now this this uh she she then goes into this fervent you know her, her yearning seeks after action draw me after you let us run the king has brought me into his chambers um this, it describes so profoundly, so beautifully, I think, this natural progression from being given the name, being told that you are, that you belong to him and he belongs to you, and then being brought into this close embrace, right? No closer possible than at the sacrament, right? Where, uh, which is, you know, the, our, our analogy for the Holy of Holies is where Christ comes to be with you, right? Um, it's where he draws you. You have any any questions, any thoughts about verses one through four? So bear so bear this in mind. So there's really as Pastor Nelson said, there are two planes, two planes at work here. So there is um, what we might call the overt sense of the text, right? Which means it's a woman expressing her love for her husband, right? We have to understand, or love her love for a man. We have to understand that overt sense. But there is this other sense which draws us into the church. Um, and you can see already how her expression of desire 
uh, fits in church, how her longing fits in church. And my question, though, is um, do, you, uh, do you experience that? And if you do, or if you don't, so if you do, what prompts that? And if you don't, how do you feel about that? How do you, how do you reflect on that? Have you ever thought to yourself, um, what I long for is God's close embrace? I'll be the first to say it's a strange, it's kind of a strange notion. I never, I never think that way or talk that way. Maybe, maybe I put it this way. What do you find yourself longing for in the same way that she longs for him? Yeah. I was, when I looked when I thought, like, I, I, want, I want a hug. A hug? Yeah. <laughs> well, so then, then, you know, not just the physical part of you, because you're, there, is no such, there is no such thing as just the physical part of you, right? I just mean that I'm more of a physical person. <laughs> you, you are a physical person. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> and in fact, take a look at, take a look at uh, quotation number two. This is, uh, th- this is what I hope for you as you read these passages and understand them. Christian interpretation of this passage should aim, above all, so to limb, to bridge the beauty, to bring into a- approach the beauty of God as to make hearers long for his presence. Indeed, a public use of this passage should make hearers long even to touch God. Um, which is, so this is the problem with uh, talking about it at too great length. Which is, which is my great temptation to, to parse it and split it into small pieces, is that um, by doing so, you separate it from its, it, the fact that it, that it should produce or can produce this longing even to touch God. Okay? So it's, it's praising this longing between a husband and wife, and the hope is that in that you'll see God's love for you and you'll be you'll be encouraged to return it. Okay? Any other questions? Any other thoughts? Yes? I just, had, I just noticed, like, under the she, like, sometimes it seems like she's talking to a group of people, describing... Right. And other times, her voice is talking to him. Right. Yeah, she does that right away. Right? Verse 1, let him kiss me. Third person... And then she shifts to second person. It's a, it, so it is at, at face value a poetic device, right? Of intensification. This, is, this happens all the time. You'll see this all over the place in Hebrew poetry and in other kinds of poetry. Um, the way things are framed is it doesn't make sense in a narrative way, right? So it would be strange if, she was, if he's standing here and you're standing here and I say, let him kiss me with the kisses in the mouth for your love is better. It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. But in terms of the poetry, it, it's, um, it's highlighting how, her, how her, her longing, her fervor is just, you know, force compelling her to, to call out to him, right? Yes? I think when you asked about if you have a long for anything, I think when I've been in times of trouble, that longing comes out sure. more. You almost... Sometimes I find myself taking it for granted because I have, yeah, because I'm here and I get you and I, you know. Sure. But then when things get tough, I feel like, oh my gosh, I need to, I need that more. Yeah. When you always really need it. Right. Sure. Well, and and I think, so I mean that 
you catch you you get at the sense of what Carol was saying too, right? So the longing comes really comes to expression, especially when you when there's distance, right? Especially when there's distance. So I think that there's uh, you know in this life that distance is often the product of things going wrong, um, sin making its way into our lives, separating us. It, so it seems from God's love, which you know this is what this is. Uh, it actually serves the purpose of the love for us to endure those situations so that we long for it. This is what, this is, um, you know, the adage, this, what, this fun, distance makes the love, yes, love grow, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Absence, what do I know? Nothing. Um, distance, right. Um, so, I mean, you get that from sort of like a psychological perspective, right? Um, it actually it actually works this way in terms of sin and redemption all the time in the course of our lives. So the things that happen to us in our lives that make life difficult, the things that we're responsible for, the things that we bring on ourselves, the things that we suffer for no apparent fault of our own, they all serve the purpose of uh, drawing us to, to express this longing, right? To draw this longing out of us, um, it's it's kind of I mean it's, it, it at times it's really frustrating because you you say to yourself why why can't I just have it right why can't why do we have to go through this but think about how you grow and mature as a person and um, yeah that that longing changes over the over time right um, just as it does in any relationship it has it can you know absence can have two effects right two possible effects it can strain and destroy and break a relationship or it can make it grow stronger. It's a test of the relationship. Um, and it's not too far-fetched even to say that, um, that our relationship with God will be so tested and stretched even after we're free from sin, right? This is a picture. Uh, we, get this, we get this a bit in verses 7 and 8. Listen to what she says. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides, beside the flocks of your companions? She's asking him where he is. Where are you? What does he say? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. What kind of an answer is that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Farmer's <laughs> Follow the blacktop road till you get to the gravel, right? <clears throat> He's not really answering her question, right? He's saying, if you don't know, I'm surprised you don't know, but if you don't know, oh, most beautiful among women, just, just follow. Ask somebody. Figure it out. Um, why, wouldn't he, why wouldn't he just tell her, Jody? You don't know anybody? Because he wants to be followed. Yeah. Right now, that's it's a risky thing to do. She might get lost, <laughs> or she might choose not to. Or she might choose not to. So, what's the? Where's the security here? Where's the certainty? Where's the? Where's the comfort? How can he do that? They love each other. Because they love each other, right? They have, a, uh, in terms of uh, God's people and Israel, they have a covenant, right? Um, he can play coy with her because 
they have something, uh, something better than all the right answers, right? Pastor Bruzik, remember, uh, if you were here on Sunday, Pastor Bruzik mentioned this about Google. There's this article he gave you, this interview, really great interview. The guy talk, describes Google as the god of, of, of moderns, of millennials, of moderns, because you go to it when you need an answer. And guess what it does? It gives you an answer, right? Um, and Pastor Bruzik made, well, it, might, it doesn't know everything, right? But by and large, you get the answer, you get an answer, and you could probably also get the answer you're looking for, too, by the way, right? You know how to read which articles you want to read, right? Um, the, the striking thing about idols is that they give you answers, and they'll even give you the answer they want, that you want. That's not true of God, okay? Uh, he doesn't have to, because he's got something better with you, Right? And he actually, in, in drawing you along and encouraging you to follow him, even when you don't know where, um, he's, he's maturing that relationship with you. Um, it's a, it's, it, it's uh, unnerving um, because, if, you know, we, we just love to have, love to have the answers, but... Um, it's how it's the it's the the sign of that the quality the character of that relationship that he can do that and that he does do that. Okay. But at the, at the end, uh, he loves her. That's right. He always loves her, and I think this is this is so. Um, yeah, he loves her from beginning to end. So as the as the relationship matures. He, um, he can continue to do this, continue to invite himself, invite her more and more to follow him. I mean, this is one of the peculiar things about, uh, uh, about holiness and about eternity and about heaven. So think about, for instance, um, the lang- the, I think I, I hook onto this phrase, the holy of holies. Okay, So this is a part of the, the innermost part of the temple. Um, how can something be holier than holy? Or how can something be more holy, because we tend to think of it in terms of a spectrum that begins at zero and ends at 100. You got 100% holiness, you're good to go. Well, it turns out you can be holier still, right? And that is, in fact, the character of this relationship with God, um, that we're going to get to heaven, we're going to get to eternity, and there's going to be more and more and more. You're still going to be saying, hey, where are you pastoring your flocks? And he's going to say, well, ask around. And you'll find me. And it's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be just what you need. Um, because it's a love story. Right? Okay. Any other questions? Thoughts? I'm, I'm really interested in uh, taking a look at the next two verses. Verses 5 and 6. I think that... Well, yeah. Okay. She says... I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, this is puzzling. This is really uh, a, a very specific thing she's talking about is puzzling. What's going on here? Do you, do you have a sense of what's going on here? Sometimes you 
She's self-conscious of her appearance. Good. And her, her appearance is, um, uh, is a consequence of something. She works outside. She works outside, right? So in, at the time, you know, having pale skin was a sign of riches. You didn't have to work outside. Working in the vineyard meant you got a tan, meant you were darker. And, and as a result, people made cast judgments on you. They said, I know, I know what kind of a person this person is. They're the kind of person that has to work in the vineyard, right? Why is she working in the vineyard? Yeah, her brothers are angry with her. Straight, what's this doing here? I don't, uh, why are her brothers angry with her? Nope. Nope. Because she didn't keep her own vineyard. Okay, so there's, here we have this, the metaphor takes on two different shapes, right? So she's working in a vineyard, and she uses the fact that she's working in the vineyard to describe then her own unchastity. She hasn't kept her own vineyard. This is why she's keeping these vineyards is because she hasn't kept her own vineyard. Now, okay, so you, so you, you kind of get a sense of what's going on here, but how does she feel about this? How does she regard this? She's embarrassed or ashamed by it, but it's also, I'll call it a fact of life. Okay. So, so she, because of her embarrassment or shame, or because she knows she might be embarrassed or shamed, she talks about it, right? She says, do not gaze at me uh, because I am dark. Um, in the first verse, I am very dark but lovely, right? Right. Now, um, th- so take a look at take a look at uh, this big quotation in the middle here, and reflect on this for a second. Think about the character of God's discipline in our lives, and how how we sh- how we do feel about it, and how we should feel about it. It's a refrain of the prophets: Israel has not guarded her vineyard. It's another refrain of the prophets. When Israel's infidelities become intolerable, she's punished. She's exiled to strange labor and is deprived of the worship in ornament and song that should make her beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Just at this point, however, the Israel of our poem surprisingly rejoices. This very punishment beautifies and elevates her. The theology of this bit of allegory is easily ascertained and quickly stated, but is inexhaustible in its depth. The punishments that Israel or the church or we bring upon ourselves and by which we become ugly in the eyes of the world are the very means by which the Lord glorifies her, glorifies us. So, in her description here, what is it that makes her so confident to say she is lovely? she's loved. That's exactly right. And how does she know she is loved? That's right. So he has said it before, but even in this situation, how does she know she is loved? Because she's being punished. Isn't that strange? Um, It's a striking thing. But uh, think about it in, you know, in, so in terms of, so the Psalm 6 always comes to mind. David prays to God. He says, discipline me, O Lord, but not in your wrath. Rebuke me, but not according to your anger. Um, 
and you know this about children or as children of, of your parents, um, that discipline is actually a, a mode of love, right? It's an ex- and, if, and at times one of the greatest expressions of love because what's, what is so unloving besides letting somebody wander away in their mistakes, right? Um, and uh, so what's, it, what's, you know, what's interesting to me is that this, this sits in this poem which you think is just going to be this really sort of plain love story, right? They've got nothing, no obstacles, nothing going on in their lives. They're just expressing their love for each other. And yet um, that can be true it can be a richer love story when we, we see these contours, the fact that things haven't been always so good, but they're good now. And her confidence is because he loves her, right? Okay. Do you have any questions? Think about Song of Songs. Uh, I was going to show you other things, too. i got to not talk so much. Um, this painting on page three is uh, of Mary Magdalene in the garden, seeing Jesus after he's resurrected, John 20. What does Jesus say to her? Don't touch me, or don't cling to me, however you want to look at it. What th- I, I think this is a really uh, an interesting story to reflect on, and interesting to reflect on the painting, because um, it's precisely, we, we just said that what the song is supposed to evoke is a desire for you to touch God, right? And Mary Magdalene is experiencing exactly that desire right here. And yet, Jesus, it's the, the, the drama of the painting is so strong, right? Jesus' body is curving away from her, and if you, it, that, that curve is, is uh, amplified because you can follow the contour of the hill and in the house, right? And her reaching out is like it follows the contour of that tree, right? The shape of her body follows the contour of that tree. Um, so her longing, and Jesus saying, don't touch me, um, how can he say that? Same, same thing that we have going on when she asks, where do you pasture your flocks? And he says, you'll find out, right? Um, you'll, find, you'll find out. Because he's going to his father and to her God um, to prepare a place for her, okay? All right. Keep going. Keep reading Song of Songs. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, I've, so I'm not sure what Pastor Nelson is going to do next week. Come back and you'll find out. <laughs>